You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information on any of the topics you hear today, or to learn more about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning, everyone. My name is Johnny Carson. I am a senior advisor at the United States Institute of Peace. Welcome to this special program being hosted by the United States Institute of Peace in partnership and collaboration with the African Union Mission to the United States and the African MCs based in Washington, DC. For those of you who are not familiar with the United States Institute of Peace, USIP was established by the Congress 35 years ago as an independent, nonpartisan organization focused on promoting peace. Through a variety of programs and research at home and abroad, USIP is engaged on a daily basis working with individuals and organizations to prevent, mitigate, and resolve conflict around the world. USIP has a robust Africa program working to promote peace, gender equity, and inclusion in countries in South Sudan, Sudan, the Sahel, Nigeria, and the Central African Republic. We also have an active relationship with the African Union, where we work with the Peace and Security Commission and several of its specialized bodies. This morning, we are extremely pleased to be partnering again with the African Union's diplomatic mission in Washington to offer our facilities and media platform to host its Africa Day program. Today's event is entitled Harnessing Coronavirus for a Peaceful and Prosperous Africa. This morning's panel discussion will focus on two important themes, how to leverage the coronavirus's pandemic to help silence the guns of war and end some of Africa's most deadly conflicts, and how Africa and the United States can work together more effectively to foster greater peace and prosperity around the continent. Africa has not felt the full weight of the coronavirus, but its lethality and fallout have the potential to overwhelm the continent's medical services, undermine its economies, and worsen its conflicts. Our discussion today will focus on how strong and effective African leadership supported by the United States and the international community can use the threat of the coronavirus to mobilize greater resources and commitment to deal not only with the health challenges of COVID-19, but also the fight against poverty and the struggle to end conflict. To start our program this morning, it is my pleasure to introduce the Dean of the African Diplomatic Corps, the Honorable Sergei Mambuli, the ambassador from the Republic of the Congo. Ambassador Mambuli is a longtime friend, diplomatic colleague, and a great representative of his country and the African Diplomatic Corps here in Washington, D.C. Ambassador Mambuli uh, will make some opening remarks. Ambassador Dean Mambuli, I turn over to you. Thank you very much, uh, Secretary Carson. In fact, uh, welcome uh, to all my colleagues. 
and I am pleased uh, about this event, celebrating uh, uh, African unity under the leadership uh, today uh, with uh, the Bank Union. I am pleased about uh, uh, all the colleagues that uh, are joining this event, and I would like to thank you, Ambassador Carson, for your leadership, promoting and strengthening the relations between the United States and the African continent, not only as a former ambassador many times, and also as Assistant Secretary for African Affairs. So without going further, I'd like to welcome this event. The United States and Africa have long-lasting and deep historic, cultural, and economic relations. The United States standing and the perception in Africa are very positive in spite of uh, the fact that other external players continue to expand their economic and political engagement as well as their model of governance and development. Africa, as you know, is grateful for the strong bipartisan support that Africa and its premier continental institution, in fact, the, really the only one, the African Union, have enjoyed over the years in both the executive and legislative branches of the United States government. US-Africa policy is unique and its bipartisanship, and there has been remarkable continuity in both Congress and the White House on the U.S. engagement with Africa. There are strategic opportunities for the U.S. engagement in the Africa beyond meeting the challenges and the crisis of the moment, such as the COVID-19. The African Diplomatic Corps here in Washington, D.C. is committed to further broaden and deepen our relation and the work with the administration, Congress, the private sector, NGOs, and of course, uh, the USPS. Uh, and the think tank the community to develop new and innovative policy and program aligned with our shared vital strategic interest for the best interest of our people and nations both in the United States and in Africa. The opportunity that the continent provides are so vast and diverse. And what is needed is to enhance U.S. engagement, diplomatic, political, and economic, and across multiple levels. Since we are celebrating Africa today, Africa Day, I want to highlight also the importance of regional approaches in the promotion of peace, stability, and economic development, which complement and reinforce the bilateral ones. The African continental free trade area is an eloquent example. In my capacity as the Dean of the African Diplomatic Corps here in Washington, I would like to see the upcoming G7 summit next month here in Washington under the leadership of President Donald J. Trump make Africa one of the priority of the summit. 
Africa is the last frontier. This uh, will secure healthy, resilient, and prosperous Africa, a shared and strategic interest of the whole international community. It is important also to maintain, increase the level of development and security cooperation appropriate annual to Africa countries and the African Union. Provide additional urgent funding for combating COVID-19 in Africa. We need to avoid that Africa becomes the next epicenter of the COVID-19. We need really the strong support of the United States. We would like to see increased funding of the US Export Import Bank and urge it to use more of its funding for Africa. As the new US International Development Finance Corporation to earmark a significant percentage of its, fund, uh, its funding for Africa. As a former businessman in Houston, Texas, and of course in this country, I know that the US private sector has an immense competitive advantage and it's unmatched globally. It, it is and America standing on the continent. We would like to see others, Africa leaders, economic summit in Washington, DC. The last one was in 2014. We are still promoting for a new one between Africa and the United States. I'm really happy about to continue to work on behalf of my colleague, my country, and the continent to continue to promote the U.S. and the U.S. and Africa ties in the United States. Thank you very much. Ambassador Rambuli, thank you very much for those very gracious remarks. It is now my pleasure to ask Ambassador Matt Herring to make some remarks on behalf of the State Department. Ambassador Harrington currently serves as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs in the Africa Bureau. He is also a longtime friend and colleague and one of the State Department's most knowledgeable and experienced diplomats working on Africa today. Ambassador Harrington, the floor is yours. Good morning uh, to, to all, a lot of familiar faces on the line. Let me start by saying, what a huge honor it is to be introduced by Ambassador Carson, who is a legend in our business in the Foreign Service and someone I have looked up to as a mentor for a very, very long time. So thank you, Ambassador Carson, for those, for those very kind remarks. I'm grateful. A big thanks to our friends at the African Union Mission in Washington at the USIP for bringing all of us together for this important occasion. I'm absolutely delighted to join you today as the Department of State Representative. In the last couple of years, I've seen the U.S. relationship with the African Union grow in many fundamentally important ways. And it is a partnership that we see as vital to achieving our mutual goals and interests, whether that involves working together to advance shared security and economic priorities, including through our annual high-level dialogue with the AU Commission, or whether it is through the life-saving work performed every day by the Africa Center for Disease Control and Prevention, also known as Africa CDC. Our own CDC in the United States, uh, some of you may know, was created nearly 74 years ago in response to an epidemic of malaria in the United States. And having a strong African counterpart in this critical health sector is essential 
not just in shaping and supporting the continent's response to COVID-19, but also to help build the systems and the policies effective in handling a broad range of health challenges, including, uh, including Ebola. The United States is proud to partner with the African Union during this difficult time, and I am confident that our collaboration over many years in the health arena in particular will be even stronger and deeper as a result of our work together to address this pandemic. Uh, just to throw a, uh, some numbers out there, just since March of this year, the State Department and USAID have committed more than $900 million in emergency bilateral assistance to help communities around the world deal with the pandemic. This funding includes nearly $270 million for Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, I wanted to emphasize that this figure is in addition to the roughly $7 billion in assistance the United States will provide this year alone to Sub-Saharan Africa. 70% of that approximately is devoted to health. And it doesn't include either the substantial funding we provide to multilateral institutions and non-governmental organizations. U.S. funding is supporting criti critical activities to support this, uh, to control the spread of the pandemic, including uh, activities like rapid public health information campaigns, water and sanitation, and the prevention and control of infections and in healthcare facilities. Looking forward, I'm optimistic that the U.S.-Africa partnership will emerge from the current extraordinary circumstances even stronger than before. There is a lot to be optimistic about. I'm optimistic about increased U.S. private sector involvement. U.S. companies are heavily engaged in COVID-19 recovery efforts, and they continue to explore expanding trade and investment ties even now. The tools put in place to bolster Africa's economic growth and prosperity, from the African continental free trade area to our collaboration under Prosper Africa to support increased trade and investment, create a foundation for a quick economic recovery and brighter future in the days ahead. I am optimistic about the amazing contributions of African women, whom we are proud to support through a range of programs, including WGDP, the Women's Global Development and Prosperity Initiative. African women who, despite being critical care providers and engines of family prosperity, face particular risks of illness and domestic violence during this pandemic. And perhaps most importantly, I am optimistic about Africa's youth who will comprise more than 70% of the continent's population by 2050. Young Africans are building a robust private sector and civil society, and they are driving technological and digital transformation across the continent. So as I think about the U.S. partnership with the AU and with AU member states, I'm excited about what the future holds and absolutely confident that we will emerge from the challenge of this pandemic together on a path that leads to greater mutual security, innovation, and prosperity. It is a very exciting time from my perspective to be working on the U.S.-Africa relationship. Before I turn the program back over to Susan to moderate the virtual panel, I want to say thank you once again for your time and to congratulate USIP and the African Union Mission for organizing this gathering. Happy Africa Day. Thank you, Ambassador Harrington. Um, good morning and good afternoon, everybody. My name is Susan Stigant, and I'm the director of the Africa program at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Um, I want to add my thanks to the African Diplomatic Corps here in Washington for the partnership this year, um, for the partnership in past years. It's a real honor to join 
all of the ambassadors today um, and our distinguished guests from the Department of State and analysts um, and to bring all of you into the conversation as we mark Africa Day. As Ambassador Carson said, um, we are celebrating Africa Day this year amid the global pandemic and the theme of silencing the guns from the African Union this year coming together with the, the challenges of the pandemic, but also the great possibilities um, brought us towards the, the title of our event of how can the response to coronavirus be, be harnessed to drive forward the leadership, the peace and prosperity that the African Union and African leaders and African citizens across the continent have called for. Um, I wanted to also note before turning to introducing our guests um, that we see this as a launch of a longer term um, campaign um, to bring together work on peace and pandemics, as well as silencing the guns. And over the next several months, we will be hearing from young people and women and religious leaders and political leaders um, from across the continent about where they see the opportunities to drive forward peace. Where are the opportunities to be creative and innovative in the responses to the COVID-19 pandemic in ways that we're already seeing across the continent? And what do they expect and hope to see in the partnership between US and Africa to drive towards shared values and priorities? So we, we look forward to adding many other voices to the conversation that we, we hear today um, and bringing people back together sometime later in the fall, possibly even in person at that point, hopefully. Uh, it's now my distinct pleasure to introduce our, our panelists who are joining us today. We have a wonderful group um, of people to share their perspectives um, and their insights related to the intersection of this, um, of this moment. Uh, first, um, we're pleased to be joined by the Ambassador of the Republic of South Africa, Her Excellency Mfaketo. Welcome. We're also pleased to be joined from Addis um, by the head of the Conflict Prevention and Early Warning team at the AU Commission, Ambassador Fred Gacharetse Ngoga. Um, we're also pleased to have Ambassador Sadiq Abubakar Wai, who's the ambassador from the Republic of Sierra Leone and the co-chair of the African Ambassadors Committee for Public Affairs. Um, finally, we have with us um, senior fellow from Brooking Institute um, and the co-director of the Thunderbird School of Global Management, Professor Landre Signier. So I'm pleased to turn first to Madame Ambassador um, to share some initial thoughts. Um, as, as we listen to her, we invite you to join us on Twitter and on Facebook or in the YouTube to send along your questions and your comments. Madame Ambassador, over to you. Okay. Thank you very much, Susan, and Ambassador Cousins for bringing us all here um, I hope we will be able as a collective of diplomats here in Africa to walk this road with you, especially if you are inviting and hearing views from all other sectors, including women and the youth. We are encouraged by the theme of this meeting, which enjoins us and recommits all of Africa to our aspirations of silencing the guns whilst we harness COVID-19 challenges for a peaceful and prosperous Africa. We join our compatriots to commemorate Africa's defining moment and to make a clarion call 
for African unity. Africa not only unite us as Africans, but it help us to understand each other as Africans on the continent and in the diaspora and provide us with an opportunity to work hand in hand towards developing our continent. As African Union, we have already taken a decisive and collaborative steps towards limiting the transmission of COVID-19 and increasing the preparedness of our countries to deal with the pandemic through the establishment of the AU joint strategy on COVID-19. Africa affirms her full support for the World Health Organization, which has been key in guiding the international response to the pandemic. And WHO has been instrumental in providing guidance and support to African governance with early detection of the pandemic, training health workers, and strengthening surveillance in communities. Program moderator, South Africa remains dedicated to promoting the African agenda and strengthen the African Union institutions and policies. We call on humanity to be bold and courageous in confronting this pandemic. We will continue to collaborate and to act in the best tradition of social solidarity. And we call upon developed countries and multilateral institutions to extend assistance to developed countries, to developing countries, which should include debt relief, more special drawing rights allocations with the international financial institutions and the provision of comprehensive and robust stimulus packages to the vulnerable countries in particular. Thank you very much. Thank you, Madam Ambassador. I look forward to returning to, to some of the themes that you have raised over the course of the conversation. And we've certainly noted how His Excellency President Ramaphosa has been leading um, the call for many of these, these approaches and the, and the need to take a, a unified approach across the, across the continent. Um, I'd like to turn now to Ambassador Fred Ngoga from the African Union Commission to, to share some initial reflections. Thank you very much, Susan. It's always good to see you. It's always good to see Johnny Carson as well, as a mentor to many. So, Your Excellencies, allow me first to thank the Africa Diplomatic Corps and the United States Institute of Peace for organizing this important event. The outbreak of COVID-19 has had a devastating effect on the global order, impacting our social, economic, and political efforts across the globe, and the African continent has not been spared. According to the latest figures, as of yesterday, the Africa Center for Disease and Control has documented over 115,000 Africans who have been infected with almost 3,500 of those succumbing to the disease. The impact of COVID-19 cannot be overstated with research indicating a, a potential global recession and even a depression. Africa is predicted to be the most affected due to the loss of, in revenue streams and declined between three to 8% in GDP in 2020 alone. The pandemic is not just a health issue. The implications are far reaching on the socioeconomic, political and security spheres. 
The African Union Commission, in collaboration with its partners, and as mentioned by the Ambassador of South Africa, our chair, has led interventions to contain the spread of COVID-19 on the continent. We've had a three-pronged approach. The first one has been to address it from, from a health perspective, with the AU Center for Disease Control in the lead, facilitating the distribution of test kits and personal protective equipment, and providing advice to our member states. Here, I take this opportunity to thank the United States government who has been providing support to our AUCDC. The AU strategic airlift concept moved from theory to practice with member states such as Cameroon, South Africa, Uganda, Algeria, to name a few, availing their air assets to transport AUCDC's experienced disease detectives from one country to another. Secondly, we took an economic approach to this pandemic where the chair of our union, His Excellency President Cyril Ramaphosa, appointed four envoys to mobilize resources to deal with health emergency and economic impact of the crisis. The AU estimates that the continent needs an emergency stimulus of about $150 billion to deal with this pandemic. Our central bank governors have also eased monetary policies and 25 African countries secured the deferment of debt payments from the IMF and the World Bank. Third, if you allow me, we have focused on the impact to peace and security. Allow me to briefly touch on the impact of COVID to, be, to peace and security. Lockdowns and curfews in most cases have resulted in the loss of jobs and revenue streams for 85.5% of Africans that work in the informal sector and who depend on a daily wages, increasing the risk of food insecurity and loss of livelihoods across the continent. This has led to an increase in crime across our continent. In the area, in countries where you have total lockdown, the crime has decreased, such as we've seen in cases like South Africa, but where you have curfews, crime has actually gone up and we've seen also gender-based violence in urban areas. It is also worth noting that a significant number of conflicts on the continent are resource-based, fueled by climatic shocks, structural governance deficit, and the lack of institutionalized dispute resolution mechanism. The COVID-19 environment is likely to exacerbate these tensions as communities grapple with government responses that directly affect their ability to feed their families. The most vulnerable will remain at risk with more than 30 million refugees and internally displaced people spread across our continent. The rise of xenophobia and stigma targeted at infected and recovered patients, as well as their families, are also a security fault line that need to be adequately addressed by states. In the same vein, state responses to COVID-19 have created a new working method with millions of workers telecommuting. Consequently, the e-working world has reinforced the need for enhanced cybersecurity measures to counter the misuse of cyberspaces in the spread of propaganda, misinformation, hacking, and in some cases, exploitation by extremist groups as a recruitment platform. Your Excellencies, as our member states are stated to hold elections through the end of 2020, the, the, in this context, the pandemic has raised crucial concerns over the organizations of, of the elections within stipulated time and in accordance with constitutional provisions. Some political actors and citizens are concerned that many governments may take advantage of the pandemic to entrench themselves beyond their constitutional limits while on the other hand, there are calls by citizens, groups and political parties 
for governments to postpone elections until the pandemic is contained as part of efforts to reduce and mitigate the spread of the virus. But there is also concern about avoiding the disenfranchisement of citizens, especially those in areas that are most affected by the pandemic. The risk of electoral violence during this time could also result in the flight of people both internally and into neighboring countries, increasing the risk of further contamination. Our continent is also faced with what the WHO has called an infodemic, the viral misinformation that is accompanying this pandemic and the rumors that are circulating are far more difficult to get rid of than we thought. We have realized that people don't necessarily trust the information, they trust the source of the information. It is therefore important to build relationships with those most trusted in society, including at the local level, in order for them to relay the science to their own communities because they are the ones who are the most listened to. It is worth mentioning that we're increasingly hearing calls by citizens across our continent calling for a new social contract between the state and the citizens and the need to recreate the state. To quote a civil society member in the DRC, people no longer want to serve those who govern, they want those who govern to serve them. While COVID runs its course in Africa, conflict prevention and mediation efforts have been affected. The novel coronavirus has delayed the implementation of critical peace agreements and Haram, Amisom offensives in Somalia, and our work that we have continued to do to mobilize 3,000 forces to be deployed to support the G5 Sahel. The Peace and Security Council has also adopted new working method to remain seized of the continued efforts of the Commission while providing guidance and the much needed policy frameworks to better respond to both security challenges and the impact of the coronavirus. Here, allow me to mention that in most of our peace support operations, we have now, they have now turned into disaster management operations. So they not only have to carry out their, their usual duties, but they also have to do disaster management. And this is uh, something that we were not prepared for, but we had to adjust. I'm almost, as, as the African Union strives for the peaceful, prosperous Africa envisioned by its Agenda 2063. I believe the US-Africa partnership can be further strengthened through addressing the multidimensional challenges the continent is facing as a result of COVID-19. Some of the areas we can strengthen our partnership are the continued provision of support in the implementation of the UN Secretary General and the AU Chairperson's appeal for a ceasefire and silencing the guns in Africa. We also look forward to the US support for African positions in the UN Security Council and the AU's overall peacemaking efforts. Number two, we look, we look for, uh, for, for support to preserve the principles of multilateralism and promote international partnerships as a tool for addressing global security threats such as terrorism, climate change, pandemics, humanitarian disasters, and others. Number three, support efforts by African countries to protect jobs prevent people from falling into more poverty and the protection of the most vulnerable. Number four, support to AU member states efforts to manage the impact on the supply chain disruption by, for example, encouraging local and regional suppliers. Lastly, we look forward to encourage US companies to partner with African technology companies to provide services in the area of e-government, telemedicine, and online education. In conclusion, the threat posed by COVID-19 has highlighted our connectedness and the need to promote multilateral approaches 
and international cooperation to contain and mitigate the impact of COVID-19. In the search for sustainable peace in these uncertain times, our continental cooperation platforms need to be revitalized, collectively mobilizing efforts towards maintaining global peace while combating the unprecedented effects of, our, of the pandemic. Our collective action and cooperation is needed now more than ever to silence the guns on our continent. Happy Africa Day, and I thank you for your kind attention. Thank you, Ambassador, and thank you for bringing that message from the African Union Commission, and I think for really laying out clearly this multidimensional challenge, but also the opportunity that it presents both for partnership um, and for peace and prosperity on the continent. I'd like now to turn to um, His Excellency, the Ambassador of Sierra Leone and the co-chair of the, um, the African Ambassadors Committee for Public Affairs um, to help us to continue the conversation. Ambassador, over to you. Thank you very much, Susan, and thank you, Ambassador Carter and um, our Dean and Deputy Assistant Secretary, uh, Honorable Matthew Harrington, and my colleagues, all protocols observed. I want to, first of all, uh, say I'm honored uh, to be joining this distinguished uh, gathering of panelists who we are going to be discussing some of the challenges that we face. As Sierra Leone's ambassador, I want to first of all say at this podium, because there are a lot of uh, uh, diaspora people listening to this program today, I'm pleased to say that uh, my president, uh, retired Brigadier Julius Madabio, was the first president in our country's history to decide on appointing uh, a Sierra Leonean diaspora in the United States. So, this is my home. United States has been my home for 38 years. And uh, uh, what this country has done for me and by extension, my country is something that I really, really appreciate. Today, of course, uh, my colleague who is uh, the ambassador for uh, uh, Swatini, Her Excellency Yabusu Webu is not here today because she was, she was stuck in our home country due to COVID. So the event for this uh, celebration today is a little different from what we had last year, uh, but happy African day. So within the framework uh, uh, of the African Union Agenda 2063, the African Union has been working with our development partners like the United States through its various initiatives to not only resolving conflict, but to prevent conflict to other vulnerable uh, uh, communities in the continent of Africa. In fact, since the adoption of the first 10-year implementation plan in 2015, the AU has given technical support to a good number of member states and five RECs in domesticating Agenda 2063 aligned to the National Regional Development Strategies. For instance, the median time National Development Plan of Sierra Leone is aligned with 20, Agenda 2063 in keeping with the commitment of our leaders to silence the guns in 2020 and ensure peaceful and stable, prosperous Africa, the African Union has established several mechanisms, such as the early warning systems, the Pan-African Network, the African Standby Force, the AU Mechanism for Police Cooperation, and the African Center. As earlier stated, prior to the outbreak of the COVID pandemic, 
a lot has been going on in Africa in terms of socioeconomic development. As we are all aware, the pandemic is posing serious challenges to not only the health sector, but also to other areas of human endeavor. COVID-19 is already exacerbating the socioeconomic conditions of countries that were already going through difficulties. To a very large extent, the pandemic has diverted our attention from most of our plans in the implementation of the continental uh, agenda. Therefore, we need to further strengthen our collaboration with the United States and other development partners that cannot, that cannot be overemphasized. Without those few, with those few introductory remarks, I would just like to give you that our government, the Israelian president, has taken as a signature to invest in Israelian human capital development. We, through that human capital development, he begins, he, he believes that unless you provide education for this, uh, for this generation and the young people, you are only going to be creating more problems. And as we know uh, that um, the, 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 the youthful population in Africa, let me just give you some numbers. Um, in 2050, by 2050, the largest population of young people are going to come from Africa. That is a fact. So the availability of this labor force, we get like about 10 million of these young people under 18 looking for ready for employment. In fact, one, nearly 1 million of them under uh, 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 1 million of the young population under it's 1 million of them enter the labor force every month. 70% remain unemployed. The unemployed, the unskilled, the uneducated are not only ready for any sustainable future, but those are the entities that some people would other intentions prey on. In Sierra, Leone, in, in Sierra Leone, for instance, the government's priority is to ensure that our youth acquire the skills necessary for training, meaningful, training them for meaningful employment. To this, the Ministry of Technical and Higher Education has developed the technical and vocational education training policy and revamped the technical and vocational education training department in the ministry. Of, uh, in, the ministry. in addition, government with the support of partners is establishing a technical institute in all 16 districts. Our job creation, given the urgent need for opportunities for youth, we are also now embarking in implementing, creating targeted interventions such as supporting small and medium-sized business and so forth. Mostly since after this outbreak of the epidemic, we decided as diaspora Sierra Leoneans in this country to form a COVID-19 task team. I could say we are the first in this country as a, as a country to reach out to our diaspora, so which brings a very, very important point that we should, and we should not uh, under, uh, underestimate. There are 8.3 million African diaspora residing in the United States. 3.5 first generation, 
five million of our children. These people are skilled, they are doctors, they are lawyers, they are professors. I would just like to say to everyone, our continent, these are our development partners. We cannot, we cannot forget them. They want to do something. In fact, my colleague, Ambassador uh, 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 Mahamadou Nemanga and I have been approached by a diverse group of Africa, African diaspora in the United States to say they want to help the AU to raise funds. So we are looking at having a major global uh, uh, concert, the benefit of which is going to go, they said, specifically to go to building the capacity of rural, rural capacity. And then now, agriculture, our agricultural sector is the untapped giant in Africa. We bring in almost a lot of, uh, according to the African Development Bank, Dr. Dr. Uh, 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 Dr. One trillion, we, they, we reach $1 trillion worth of agricultural products. If we invest in agriculture, that's how much money will be coming to Africa. So you could be doing agriculture at the same time building wealth. So there should be a, an emphasis placed on that. And let me don't go leave with my final point. There is a difference between free speech and hate speech. And many of the people that live, that have left our countries and come to the United States, as well as Europe, have used the, under the guise of free speech to create mayhem in our countries. Most recently in Sierra Leone, there were people in this country who were sending incendiary remarks asking for the burning and, 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 and the burning of the prisons. And that happened. So when we raised that issue, they said it's freedom of speech. But I know as a member of, former member of the New York City Police Department, there's a difference between free speech and hate speech. So when somebody is talking about hate speech to try to destabilize a country wherein we have been suffering, I think you cannot say silencing the gun is only when somebody shoots somebody, but when somebody creates an environment and atmosphere to destabilize these growing fledging democracies, I think we need to look at our development partners, particularly the United States and Europe, to revisit these things. Because if somebody commits a crime in this country, they have to be punished. So we will connect the material, the dossier, and submit it to our host country, the Department of State, which has absolutely been phenomenal. So I will stay there and, 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 and because I get very passionate about this and, uh, and, and I yield back. Thank you very much, Minister. Thank you, Ambassador. Um, I do hope we can return um, to the theme that you, the really important theme that you raised about youth and youth, youth's role um, in silencing the guns, in the prosperity of the continent, in innovation. Um, and I hope 
for people who are joining us online that you will share your thoughts and ideas and perspectives. Um, we're using the hashtag peace and pandemics as well as hashtag silencing the guns. Um, and we hope that you can be part of the conversation. Um, before we turn to questions, um, I'd like to, to hand over to uh, Professor Landry Signier, um, who many of you know for his um, excellent analysis, his recent book, um, Unlocking Africa's Business Potential, um, to hear his perspectives about where, where are the opportunities to, to harness this moment. Good morning and uh, happy Africa Day. Uh, I am uh, very grateful and I commend uh, USIP and the African Diplomatic Corps uh, for this, for organizing this extremely uh, important uh, event. So I'm honored to be part of, uh, of this panel. My preliminary uh, comments will be organized around three points. So the first is the mechanism uh, through which uh, uh, COVID-19 uh, has uh, affected uh, uh, Africa or is affecting Africa, then the uh, vulnerability, the resilience, and finally the economic uh, opportunities. So I will try to keep that in three minutes. <laughs> So the, the, the first point is that when you speak about COVID-19, as, um, as you all know, we have about three core mechanisms. So the first one is the exogenous uh, shock. Uh, so which means that beyond the health consequences uh, generated by uh, COVID-19, the exogenous shock is uh, characterized by the disruption of the global uh, supply chain. Uh, including uh, of essential products uh, necessary to address uh, the pandemic, but also uh, the broader economic uh, uh, conditions. So the second uh, uh, factor is the endogenous uh, shock as well, so which is characterized by the disruption in government of uh, disruption of businesses uh, with job losses, disruption of tourism and travels. Uh, amount uh, order only in Africa an estimated number amount between 19 and 22 million jobs uh, are estimated to be lost on the continent this year due to uh, COVID-19. And uh, when we know that uh, Africa, the, the proportion of African who uh, reach the age, the working age uh, is about, uh, you have about 20 million people uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa. And if we focus uh, on the one actually um, making the transition to work, it's about uh, nine to 12 million uh, people. So those are important disruption. And when we speak about disruption uh, or job losses, we also speak about loss of income uh, among uh, other factors. And combined also with the collapse, so the other shock is the collapse of commodity prices, which many, with many countries, uh, unable to sell your products uh, with a drastic drop. In the case, for example, uh, uh, many countries were not able to sell, for example, your oil uh, uh, production, uh, among other factors. So those are some of the mechanisms through which uh, COVID-19 uh, is affecting uh, Africa. So even if, uh, in a piece that I've written for foreign uh, policy, even if the health uh, conditions uh, or consequences are not drastic. The economic consequences uh, are definitively uh, of concern, especially as many of the resources that the government, were, many of the governments were using 
to invest uh, in the economy are now redirected uh, to address some of the shortcomings of the uh, healthcare system, including the limited preparedness and um, the overall high incidence and mortality uh, rates for both communicable and non-communicable uh, diseases among other factors. So, so I think those are, are, are well-known uh, questions, so I will not expand too much on those. So let me turn on uh, the resilience. So the reason why uh, I, I believe African economies, although uh, they will be uh, significant, significantly uh, affected by the pandemic, are more resilient than uh, many people think. Uh, we have already seen how the uh, continent has resisted uh, to the 2008 crisis uh, much more effectively, although the dimension with uh, COVID-19 uh, risk uh, to growth have to be taken more seriously. And as you mentioned, uh, Susan, in my book, uh, Unlocking uh, Africa Business uh, Potential, uh, which was released in April and was written mostly um, before uh, the COVID pandemic uh, occurred. So I analyze and I deeply present the tremendous uh, potential African economies uh, offer to both global uh, and uh, local businesses, which are critical for job creation on one hand, for economic, so for sustained economic growth, for creating opportunity for women, uh, for uh, young people, uh, as well as to generate broader or general welfare. So those are extremely uh, important. So some of the identified uh, 12 key trends, so I will not necessarily be going through all of them and I'll be happy to discuss uh, during the conversation, uh, but one of the uh, core character trends that I identify is the increasing leadership that many African countries are playing in the fourth industrial revolution. And we have seen that uh, many innovators have been involved in uh, providing solution, for example, using uh, big data, using artificial intelligence uh, to track uh, COVID-19 to provide option for better testing uh, among others, so that's a, a core trend. A second point is also the effort uh, to, uh, let's say, improve the business environment. Of course, many challenges remain. However, uh, more than uh, or about 50% of the top 10 uh, best improved countries in the ease of doing business uh, uh, globally have been located in Africa in the uh, recent years. So we also have the increased business spending uh, the, the growth, although this factor will be under stress uh, uh, given COVID-19, but uh, uh, just before uh, COVID-19, we have seen a significant growth of the proportion of African living with available discretionary income, which is extremely important also uh, from a business uh, perspective. So we have the fast regional integration with the African continental free trade area. And I think beside the fact that the CFTA may be uh, postponed, we should not overlook the hard work being made to accelerate its implementation right now and to facilitate trade during the pandemic uh, as 
uh, uh, even independently of the official launch of the, of the CFTA. So it's extremely important. Many, many people have been concerned. In fact, the pandemic has clearly demonstrated that Africa need the African continental free trade area more than ever because most of the essential products, including pharmaceutical one, uh, are, are imported. And uh, the continent produces barely 2% uh, of the pharmaceutical products. And we, when we enter a context where it's a global competition uh, between uh, advanced economies and emerging economies and uh, uh, African countries, we can clearly see uh, why uh, it's important uh, to unlock the industrial uh, potential. So other factors, of course, include a broader improvement of health. So of course, we are not yet where we need to be, but we should not uh, neither uh, overlook the substantial progress uh, over the past couple uh, of decades. We have also seen an, a, a strong effort to close the, the infrastructure gap and an accelerated industrialization. When we think about uh, what we call the broken transition industries without smokestacks, because when people speak about industrialization on the continent, in Africa in, in general, and many African countries, they mostly think about traditional manufacturing. And that's why many scholars will be saying that Africa is deindustrializing. However, uh, industries in industry without smoke, that export related to those industries have uh, grown six times faster than uh, export in traditional um, manufacturing. So this is tremendous. And those industries have the same ICT-based industry, agro-industry, among other, have the same type of characteristics uh, as uh, traditional manufacturing. So they have uh, a high uh, job absorption uh, capacity. They, they require moderately skilled uh, for workers, as well as um, their durability, uh, also their exportable, the tradability, the exportability, and uh, their high productivity. So there's definitely an opportunity to create more job and then to reduce also uh, social consequences. So I, I, I will not be uh, expanding longer, but I also just want to mention the critical role uh, of the African diaspora, with her playing a role as uh, building uh, bridges and representing, being ambassador of the continent, uh, contributing to investment, uh, to trade, to research, uh, skills transfers, uh, among other factors. So I'll be happy to continue this conversation. I know that I have to stop here. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I, I, I think it's worth um, putting a, a highlight over your remark that there has been tremendous progress um, and that there is a lot of reason for hope. Uh, I, I'm continually struck that as, as we look around the world and think through how can people come together in response to something that touches us collectively, um, the world is struggling to do that. And really the collective action by the African Union, by African countries really stands out as, as, an, as an example for, for all of us to, to look towards and to learn from. Um, so thank you to, to all of our speakers and um, the ambassadors for their, their opening remarks. We've had some questions come in um, and I'd like to put a couple of those out to the group um, and ask for um, people to, to jump in where, where you have particular 
particular interest. Um, I'd like to start with one that, that touches on a point that um, His Excellency Ambassador Mogouli raised in his, his remarks about the G7 meeting that's happening in June. Um, and I think curious to hear a little bit more about how, how would you like to see Africa figure on the agenda? Um, what are some of the key points that, that you hope will come forward in that conversation um, and that the U.S. as, as a partner can help to ensure um, sits on the agenda to, to drive forward these conversations? Um, a second question um, that's come in relates to um, the opportunity to harness some of the knowledge um, and homegrown technology, particularly in the, in the response to COVID-19. Um, I think many people have seen the, the tremendous um, work from the, the Pasteur Institute in Senegal um, and other innovations across the continent. And so how, how can the AU help to uh, connect that together um, and share that knowledge and, and practice across? Um, and then a, a third question that's, that's come in um, relates, relates to how we can ensure that the response right now that's taking place across those very multiple dimensions, whether it's debt relief, um, the response in terms of distribution of, of materials, um, what can be done to ensure that that helps to fuel the growth that was taking place, that helps to contribute towards inclusive politics um, that we know is, is what ultimately will lead towards more peace across the continent um, and help to drive towards Agenda 2063 that the African Union has set out. Um, so those are three very big questions. Um, I won't ask everybody to, to go to all of them, but uh, maybe Madam Ambassador, I can and turn to you first for, for any of your thoughts on those questions that have come through to us. Thank you very much. Um, I, I really haven't thought the, the response uh, at the moment, but maybe safe to say what whatever we do, in particular in the last uh, question, what whatever we do, if the whole, looking at the whole society, women and the youth, when Ever we have a strategy for success. If we leave out those uh, people, including the religious sector that is playing a very important role in our country. We have a situation, for instance, in South Africa, maybe this is an example. When we dealt with uh, COVID-19, our president convened everybody, the opposition, the labor unions, the churches, and all other sectors that are there. And as a result, there was never an opposition in whatever that we're talking about that will help our communities. So that, that's for now, I'm, I'm stopping there, Madam Moderator. Thank you, Madam Ambassador. I think it's a really interesting um, observation that this type of threat requires us to work together. It necessarily requires an inclusive approach. And so the challenge is how do we marry that up with um, what Ambassador Ngoga talked about in terms of postponement of elections and agreeing on how and when to go forward for delays in implementation of peace agreements or other resource conflicts that will arise um, and how can, we, how can that, that momentum be leveraged forward. 
Professor, any, any thoughts on, on some of the questions that have been raised about technology or the opportunity to, to ensure that responses continue to fuel towards the growth momentum that, that existed? Uh, yes, uh, definitely. So, uh, perhaps before getting to the technologies, I want to highlight the critical importance uh, of, uh, for supporting the both formal and informal sector workers yeah. uh, to sustain demand. And this, I think, uh, in order to be achieved, definitely require an important role from African government, including avoiding or at least uh, limiting areas to private firms uh, uh, from the uh, public sector, especially in supply chain for critical uh, products. So that is an extremely important factor. A second uh, will be to uh, substantially finance uh, the private sector, uh, which is critical, and the private formal sector, which is critical for uh, job uh, creation. So, um, for example, a, a recent studies uh, requested about uh, between 2.5 to 5.5 uh, uh, billion US dollar uh, from their files, especially in Europe, uh, to support the, the, the need of new capital, uh, increase or reduce also um, the intolerance uh, to risk uh, among other factors. So those are two of the critical factors. Specifically related to women, I think uh, a COVID-19 Africa Women uh, uh, Relief Fund uh, should be created in each country. It's extremely uh, important. We often uh, speak about the need of addressing, uh, of improving uh, gender equality, but I think it's definitely an area which clearly requires very specific uh, policy, very specific intervention, targeted intervention, including in the to improve the informal sector uh, livelihoods. So, and for that, it's important to maintain uh, household uh, consumption. Uh, we know that, especially for the bottom 75 to 80 percent uh, of household, uh, we know that in the informal sector, they rely on uh, income uh, in both the public. Uh, and the private sector to uh, sell your products uh, among others. So, so those are perhaps some of the quick um, uh, uh, elements which can help address uh, uh, making the policies which are being adopted more inclusive uh, so that uh, fewer people are left behind or ideally no one uh, is left behind in, the, uh, in addressing uh, COVID-19. Uh, speaking now about technology, it is extremely important for countries uh, and also at the continental level, but especially for countries to create a task force, a uh, fourth industrial revolution or digital uh, task force, which will clearly identify the technology, uh, the scalable uh, innovations and technologies uh, which have been developed. Um, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Africa is rich of innovation the, the challenge is, this, uh, is to scale uh, those innovation and such a task force, including uh, both people from the uh, public and private sector, uh, uh, innovator, uh, civic servant, uh, 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 will definitely be uh, contributing. The second factor is also to invest in scaling those technology. So access is something, but usage is another. In a recent uh, uh, blog post uh, with the Brookings on using the fourth industrial revolution, uh, to fight COVID-19, 
um, I have with my co-author uh, identify a framework where we can see that even some countries, including advanced economies, which have a high capacity, are not necessarily using the technology the most effective way. So in order to bridge the gap, it's important to match those. And the final point uh, is also uh, to capitalize on those uh, uh, innovations to really uh, contribute to uh, universal uh, healthcare. And there are many solutions also which exist. Again, the question is about the scalability and the support of, partner like, uh, of partners like the United States uh, in uh, sustaining uh, those initiatives. Thank you. Thank you, Prof. Uh, Ambassador City, would you like to come in? You'll need to unmute yourself, Ambassador. Uh, I, I wanted to touch a little bit on the inclusive politics that you talked about, particularly in countries, uh, in countries like my own. Um, to, for a government to include others, there's got to be sincerity and a commitment to a country. When this COVID situation occurred in my country, the president, there was a national sensitization by bringing not only uh, labor, not only political people, but they brought church, church leaders, they, they, they brought the faith-based communities, and they, they, they consulted with civil society and brought them all. And they went to the traditional rulers in the villages and, and, and to say to them and, 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 and taught them about this, the, 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 the rudiments and the, 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 the things that is the washing of the hands. So since we, we were coming from the Ebola epidemic, so we had some kind of way of doing this. But the point I'm also making here is when the government in power is honest about really reaching out. It is also incumbent about the other sides to also come to that because we, it is a question of national, it's a national thing. This epidemic does not discriminate or does not, so we all have to come together. So what we did here in the United States, in the Australian diaspora, we brought all the members of the various political parties, we brought church leaders, we brought uh, 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 Muslims, all together, women, young people to say to them, we only have one country. This is an epidemic. So let us all come together. That's how we established that COVID-19 task force and people are contributing because we got them involved. Children are involved, women are involved. So to have inclusive policy, there's gotta be honesty on both sides. It's not only the, the government in power that is gonna reach out, the others have to reach out as well. Parliamentarians have to be involved. All members of civil society have to be engaged in that process. That's the only way we're going to go before. And that's what we are doing on this part to be able to make sure that people understand that we are all one Sierra Leone. Our country, when the country, something like this is, we've been through a Ebola epidemic. We want to make sure that we learn from the past and begin to do. That's why our numbers in all of the whole Africa, our numbers were, were small. But now that we are getting other people coming from other parts of the world, the numbers are increasing. So we will really look to our development partners to understand that, you know, we need help, but we want to do it in partnership. We are not looking for handouts. We are looking for the opportunities to be uh, brought to our country so that we could work together. Thank you, Ambassador. 
Master Ngoka, would you like to come in on this um, question about the role of the AU in sharing technology and knowledge um, to, to help with the response? Or any of the other points? That well, thank you so very much. I've, thank you. I've been listening very carefully. And, uh, but uh, before I, I, I get to that, perhaps uh, just to touch on the inclusive politics, the fact of the matter is that the, the challenges that we're faced with dwarfs uh, compare to the, this pandemic. And it's not only inclusive politics in our member states. I think this is actually an opportunity to even fast track regional integration because this thing has no boundaries and we will need each other to really be able to, uh, uh, to deal with uh, this pandemic. So regional integration is actually going to be fast tracked by this pandemic. And I'm very optimistic about that. The other thing is that uh, with regards to technology and so on, let's also remember that not everybody has access to even a phone. Uh, on our continent, let alone uh, technology. So I think that uh, there, are, there are some programs actually to uh, get uh, technology to uh, in the rural areas and so on and so forth in some countries, but not in others. So uh, I think the professor... Has ...talked about the need to have access. I have just worked on that to see how we can, uh, we can actually, uh, you know, ensure that people have, have access. I think that something that is extremely important with regards to uh, technology, and I, and I think I mentioned it in my remarks, is the need to partner with uh, the development world. Uh, because I said, even in Africa, we're gonna be doing a lot of e-government. We're gonna be doing a, a lot of uh, mobile banking. We're gonna be doing a lot of uh, you know, telemedicine. All of this is gonna be uh, uh, important in the, in the future. And by the way, uh, this is one pandemic. There will be other pandemics as well. So uh, we better be ready uh, when that happens. We, we don't want to be caught off guard like we were this time around. Uh, uh, so the growth of technology, there are opportunities, and this is where we can work all together. Uh, and uh, on the issue, of course, uh, that uh, uh, the inclusive politics, uh, why are we seeking a cessation of hostilities, actually? Why does the Secretary General want it? or even ourselves. It is because we're trying to make sure that everybody has access to healthcare, that we can actually be able to assist even in those areas where we don't have access to. So that's why we've been actually working very hard to secure a ceasefire with, uh, with some groups, uh, not only in Cameroon, uh, in Sudan, uh, and elsewhere, and we're still working on it. And some actually have hit our call and have laid down their arms, which has been very helpful. And we're continuing with those who have not uh, actually heard the message. So I'll stop here, thank you. Thank you, Ambassador. Um, we are quickly um, closing in on the end of our conversation. And uh, I think in many ways we've set out a series of other conversations that would be very interesting to pursue. Um, further conversation about where, where can a global ceasefire um, be negotiated and how can that be held? Um, what are the steps towards regional integration that could help to, to harness this moment effectively? Um, so I'd like to turn um, back to our panelists um, for any final remarks um, that they have to share um, before turning to Ambassador Sadiq to, to close us out. Um, maybe I'll start with uh, Prof. Signe. Would you have any final comments as we close? So uh, my final comment will simply be uh, first to thank you, Suzanne, to thank Ambassador Carson, the Diplomatic Corps for organizing this incredible event. And the second one uh, is to say that I deeply believe the U.S. should uh, uh, 
take its place uh, in Africa. So this is a tremendous opportunity. Uh, Africans are ready for business for investment uh, and uh, overall really like uh, dealing uh, with the US. So with initiative like Prosper Africa, uh, they, uh, I have seen a very uh, encouraging uh, shift uh, from an initial skepticism to the African continental free trade area to a full endorsement. And I think that uh, U.S. cooperation should definitively be supported uh, to the level necessary uh, for your increased engagement uh, on the continent. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us and for lending your expertise. Um, Ambassador Ngoka, any final remarks or thoughts from you? Yeah, yeah, yes, thank you so much, uh, Susan. I just wanted to say thank you for inviting us and for giving us an opportunity to highlight some of the challenges we're faced with. But uh, we are a resilient continent and we will overcome this. We have overcome Ebola, we have overcome yellow fever, we have overcome malaria, or we're still fighting it. But so we will overcome this one as well and uh, we look forward. Ambassador, I think that your internet is telling us it's probably near the end of end of our program as well. So thank you, thank you for joining us today from Addis, and we're grateful that it held as much as it did. Um, Ambassador Carson, any final thoughts from from you that you'd like to add? Thanks, thanks, Susan, and thanks to all of the ambassadors. Thanks to the African Union Mission uh, in uh, Washington D.C. And thanks to our colleagues uh, at the AU uh, in Addis Ababa. Uh, in every crisis, in every crisis, uh, there uh, are enormous challenges and problems and issues to overcome. Uh, but in every crisis, there is indeed an opportunity uh, to move forward. Uh, I think that, uh, as uh, Ambassador Ngoga has said, uh, these are, are uh, there are opportunities out there. Professor Landry um, has, has mentioned a number of them. Uh, we need uh, to work together uh, in the United States with our partners in Africa to ensure that we take advantage of the opportunities that exist and not uh, simply uh, fall back and deal with the problems as they are. Thank you, Ambassador Carson. Madam Ambassador, thank you so much for joining us. Any final, final remarks or thoughts for our audience? Yes, yes, thank you very much, um, moderator. Uh, I think it's just really to thank uh, Ambassador Carson's and everybody who brought us here today. And I agree, there might be crisis now, but there are great opportunities for us to unite as different countries, not only Africa, you know, but different countries. And I'm, I'm looking forward to a situation where really we strengthen our relationship and look at issues that are really able to build different communities. I know I'm saying that knowing very well that the United States is doing so much in different countries including my country, uh, but this uh, situation we are under is providing us with an opportunity to do even more. Thank you very much. 
Thank you, Madam Ambassador. We, we look forward to South Africa's leadership um, to take these conversations forward. And, and I should have welcomed you to Washington, D.C. I know that you're relatively recently arrived, so welcome. We, we look forward to working with you going forward. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, Ambassador Mumbuli, thank you so much for the partnership with the African Diplomatic Corps. Um, it's been such a pleasure to work with you and your team. And as I said, we look forward to continuing this conversation, and I hope we can come back together in a couple of months, take stock of where we are, um, and think through further where there are opportunities to strengthen the US-Africa partnership. Ruthie, thank you very much, uh, Susan. Uh, just uh, two, two few words before uh, we leave the program. Uh, since the G7 will take place in Washington, DC, hosted by the United States, and I take advantage of the fact that uh, the U.S. government is represented in this meeting uh, with the State uh, Department. Uh, we in Africa, with this uh, COVID-19, we will request that uh, the United States, being the host, who set up the agenda, to, to think seriously about the debt relief, uh, the debt relief for the African continent, because this COVID-19 will have a very serious impact on our economy that are already very weak. And number two, I think uh, uh, with uh, $10 million or $20 million uh, uh, for the funding with uh, USAID, that will help uh, to buy more testing in Africa and to continue to do testing uh, in the continent. That will be the proof of strengthening also the relationship between the United States and the African continent. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. Um, so I'm now pleased to turn to Ambassador Sadiq to give us some closing remarks um, on behalf of the African Diplomatic Corps. First of all, Susanna and Ambassador Carter, thank you so much on behalf of the African Diplomatic Corps. I know many of my colleagues are on this uh, line today. We want to just thank you very, very much. And you as moderator for really have done an outstanding yeah. job. And uh, just on my part, I, I, I really want to also thank our host country, the United States, who have absolutely uh, done a lot for Africa. And like the Dean said, uh, we look to continue working with them and particularly our colleagues in the African Diplomatic Corps with to supporting the leadership of the United States and let us work together. Uh, and finally, uh, let us not also forget the African diaspora constituencies in the United States, they will play a very, very key role. So we're hoping that during the time you're thinking of other involvements, we'll be very happy to working with you in that direction so that we should get them to be part of the conversation. Because when they buy into what we are doing, uh, they could be very, very supportive because they could help this country. They live here, they work here, and uh, we, we're looking forward to your, to your leadership and uh, we thank you for uh, taking the time and doing all of this technical stuff. Some of us were not happy, but uh, we really appreciate it. And we want to thank you deeply from the bottom of our heart from the African Diplomatic Corps. Thank you very much. Great. Well, thank you, ambassadors, excellencies, guests, um, and thank you to everybody who joined us online today. We look forward to continuing the conversations, the hashtag peace and pandemics and silencing the guns. Uh, we hope that it will bring forward a lively conversation and, and targeted action towards peace in the coming months. Have a good day, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Ambassador. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org slash podcasts. Thank you.